Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And it has been a great couple of months for history news, hasn't it, sure Sarah? It has been. Yeah, there's been this new theory about Butch Cassidy's demise. Blackbeard's ship was positively identified, which is really cool. And there was a new lead in the subject we're going to talk about today, the D.B. Cooper mystery. And if you've never heard of D.B. Cooper, we're referring to the 1971 hijacking of a Northwest Orient Airlines flight, which is to this day, as of this podcast, still unsolved. The man who did it was never caught or positively identified. And we're not even sure if he lived past the day that the crime was committed. A mystery indeed. But over the years, this has become one of America's favorite mysteries, people love to just obsess over the clues and the suspects. And there are even informal groups of amateur investigators who've essentially devoted their lives to trying to solve this case. Yeah, there's a recent CNN story about that. But if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you're probably thinking when you saw the title D.B. Cooper, hey, that looks pretty familiar. And it's true. Candace and Josh touched on this topic back in the Fact or Fiction days. The format of the show then was much shorter, so it only got three minutes and 49 seconds. And we've gotten requests over the years to address some of these topics in our longer format. And D.B. Cooper was just one that we thought definitely deserved more attention. People want more from D.B. Cooper. They want answers. So here we want to take a closer look at the case and some of the theories surrounding it and the leads that have come up over the years, including a very recent lead. You've probably seen D.B. Cooper's name in the news in the past weeks, even. But we're going to start by talking about what actually happened the day of the hijacking, sort of go blow by blow with it. So just to set it all up, on November 24th, 1971, which was the day before Thanksgiving, a man who gave the name Dan Cooper showed up at the airport in Portland, Oregon, and paid cash for a one-way ticket on the Northwest Orient Airlines flight 305 to Seattle. So That's how it started. And nothing about Cooper's appearance that day really raised any red flags for everyone. He just looked like this regular guy. He was wearing a dark business suit and a narrow, dark tie with a pearl tie tack. He also had a Homburg hat on and carried a dark raincoat and a briefcase. According to witnesses, he was about six feet tall and 175 pounds, and he was probably in his mid-40s. He had short brown hair, a receding hairline, brown eyes, and he was clean-shaven. Very average sounding. Yeah, absolutely. And he was assigned to aisle seat 18C on the flight. The plane itself was a Boeing 727, so not like a super tiny prop plane or something like that, even though it was a very short, around 30-minute flight to Seattle. The plane could actually seat around 94 passengers, but there were only 36 on board, which comes into play later. It does. So while Cooper was waiting for the plane, he lit up a cigarette, ordered a bourbon and soda, and uh, just hung out in the afternoon waiting for the flight to take off. Then shortly after the plane was airborne, he handed the flight attendant Florence Schaefner a note yeah, and Schaefer was 23 and pretty, and according to an article by Jeffrey Gray in New York Magazine, she was used to passengers hitting on her, and so that's basically what she thought was happening when she got the note. She said she tried to kind of shrug it off, like, oh, yeah, it's just another note from a guy, I'm going to put it away, but Cooper said to her, Miss, you better take a look at that note. The note was written in felt pen in all caps, and it said, quote, I have a bomb in my briefcase. 
I want you to sit beside me. So she did as she was told, and Cooper gave her a glimpse inside his briefcase. And when he opened it up, she saw this mass of wires, a battery, six red sticks. So it looked like it could be a bomb. It looked like it could be a bomb. And he made her write down some instructions of what he wanted, which included $200,000 in used 20s, two parachutes, and two backup chutes. So two front and two back chutes. And he wanted a fuel truck ready to refuel when the plane landed. He told her, no funny stuff or I'll do the job. So the crew and the airline did what he wanted. They had to circle the airport for a little bit while the people on the ground put the demands together. And after the plane landed and parked on this remote part of the airfield, Cooper let all of the 36 passengers plus Schaefner get off the plane. And that left three flight officers and a another flight attendant on the plane with him. And he requested that meals be brought to them and asked for his note back. It seemed like he had all of this really carefully prepared. Then they took off from the Seattle-Tacoma airport at about 7.46 p.m., which was two hours approximately after they'd landed. And at first, Cooper told the pilot that he wanted to go to Mexico, but he had really specific instructions for him, too. He told the pilot to keep the plane below 10,000 feet, and he claimed that he had a wrist altimeter to actually check up on that, too, and ordered him to fly no faster than 150 miles per hour with the flap set at 15 degrees. Yeah, and so the pilot told him at that point that they couldn't make it to Mexico City under those conditions without refueling in Reno. So Cooper agreed to that. After they were airborne, though, Cooper ordered the flight attendant to go into the cockpit so he was alone in the cabin. Then around 8 p.m., a light on the instrument panel indicated that the door to the aft stairs had been opened. And about 20 minutes later, the crew noticed a slight change in the plane's altitude. The nose dipped first and then the tail, which is apparently what happens when the aft stairs are lowered. So when the plane landed in Reno, Cooper was gone. So now let's look at the time frame a little. Judging by the time they noticed that the aft stairs had been opened and lowered, they estimated that he'd come down near the Lewis River, which is north of Portland. And authorities combed that area really thoroughly, bit by bit over the next few weeks, looking for anything, you know, a scrap of parachute, money, just something that could be connected to him. But absolutely nothing came up. And the FBI, of course, immediately opened an investigation on this whole thing and called it Norjack for the Northwest hijacking, a pretty dramatic-sounding name. But by the five-year anniversary of the crime, they'd considered more than 800 suspects and eliminated all but two dozen. So it seemed like maybe they were getting somewhere. And the thing is, though, suspects and leads continue to come up even today. So surely that number has only grown since then. So what types of suspects are they looking for, though? Let's break that down a little bit. Well, there's the physical description we mentioned earlier, and witnesses seem to agree on that. There were at least two flight attendants who gave pretty much the same exact description, and a composite drawing was made from that, and that's been published everywhere by now. So, Receding hairline man, wearing glasses in one picture, no glasses in the other. Yep. And the name also is sort of an interesting point here. It's very likely that Dan Cooper, of course, wasn't the hijacker's real name, but the FBI has investigated some people with the last name Cooper over the years. And 
that's how the DB thing came into the picture. They questioned a man with those initials early on, but it turned out that he had nothing to do with it. The press ran with it, though, and it kind of caught on. And I guess DB Cooper just sounds way sexier and cooler than Dan Cooper. It's more distinctive, for sure. So investigators have also tried to gather clues from the hijacker's behavior to try to figure out what his occupation might have been, what his background might have been. And at first, because of his detailed instructions to the crew about how to fly the plane, you know, the the degrees of the flaps and the altitude and all of that, and his very specific parachute request, and, and just the fact that he knew how to open the aft door, many assume that Cooper had some sort of familiarity with aviation. Maybe he had been in the Air Force, or maybe he was an experienced skydiver. But that that kind of idea about him changed pretty dramatically over the years. It has. Now they really don't think that he was such an experienced skydiver after all. According to the FBI's website, quote, no experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with a 200 mile an hour wind in his face wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply too risky. Also, that reserve parachute that Cooper chose to take along with him, I think if you'll remember, we mentioned that he took he had asked for four. So he took two of those. And one of them was actually a training chute that had been sewn shut. One he took with him. Yeah. So a skilled skydiver or so authorities think probably would have noticed that that was the case. Although you never know in the, the heat of the moment. So those are just some of the details that the FBI has used to try to put together a profile on who this hijacker really was. And we've got to look at hard clues, though, not just this background information profile business. So the only physical evidence that was left behind on the plane were eight Raleigh cigarette butts, a black J.C. Penny tie, and a tie tack. And there were also 66 unaccounted fingerprints on Flight 305 that they could compare to suspects' prints. And it, you know, they, they were prints that didn't match any of the known passengers, any of the known crew, and were therefore assumed to be those of D.B. Cooper. Later, though, they got something a little bit better. They were able to actually lift DNA from the tie in 2001, which helped them to rule out a couple of suspects. In February 1980, a boy plane on the bank of the Columbia River also found $5,800 of the payoff money. The FBI had actually written down the serial numbers. But even though the authorities secured the area again and kind of scoured it, they haven't found any more. During the search, they did find a human skull, though. But this turned out to be a woman's and possibly Native American, so it wasn't related to the case. There was one other false alarm, kind of like that skull. A parachute matching the chutes given to Cooper was found in 2008 by some children who were playing in southwestern Washington. They dug it up. But the chute that they found was silk, and Cooper's were nylon, so it was ruled out as possible evidence. There is an interesting clue, though, regarding Cooper's name that the FBI has shown an interest in in recent years with some of these more dramatic clues or or possible leads drying up. There's a French comic book series about a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot named Dan Cooper. And Dan Cooper has adventures sometimes in outer space, but also sometimes during real events of that era. And in one episode, which was published near the date of the hijacking, the cover illustration shows our hero Dan Cooper parachuting. And I love this clue because to me, it's just like something out of the show Heroes. You know, the comic book is illustrated and it predicts the future and then something happens. Um, but that was possibly something that influenced the hijacker to pick that Choose name. Choose that name. 
So though the FBI has looked into several leads for this case over the years, including people who've actually confessed to this crime, a few really stand out from the rest. One involved a man named Richard F. McCoy. And as we get into McCoy's story, we should say that there were lots of copycat attempts after D.B. Cooper hijacked Flight 305, and McCoy's was just one of them. He hijacked a United flight over Utah in April 1972 and got $500,000. But he made a mistake. He told a buddy about his plan, and that friend turned him in. Everyone was really shocked about it, too. This guy, he was a Sunday school teacher, a student at BYU, and also an ex-Green Beret helicopter pilot, which is why some people thought that there was a strong Cooper connection there. But McCoy was later ruled out because he didn't match the physical description of Cooper, and he had an alibi for the crime that happened on that the day before Thanksgiving of that year. Yeah, but McCoy was convicted for the United hijacking, and he was sent to jail for 45 years. He escaped in 1974, and he was killed in a shootout with the FBI. So just a, a side note on that lead there. But then there was also a guy named Dwayne Weber. And on his deathbed, he whispered to his wife of 17 years, I'm Dan Cooper. Sounds like a strange thing to say. Yeah, and she didn't know what he was talking about because of the whole Dan Cooper, D.B. Cooper confusion. But once she figured out that Dan Cooper was, in fact, D.B. Cooper, it sent her down this crazy road of remembering clues that connected her husband to the crime. And I would say remembering with air quotes because... It seemed almost like she was sort of putting pieces together after the fact. Making the story fit. Yeah, making the story fit. And he's also spent time in the Army, and he matched the physical description. So it wasn't just her. The FBI got interested in this, too. And the DNA that they got off that tie in 2001, though, actually ruled Weber out as a suspect. So... We have a few more, though. There was another suspect named Kenneth Christensen that New York Magazine did an article on back in 2007. But the FBI felt that he didn't match Cooper's physical description enough. And they also thought that the fact that Christensen was a skilled paratrooper made it unlikely he would have jumped out under those conditions. And I was pretty fascinated that that was that had become one of the qualifications they were looking for going from uh, D.B. Cooper probably knew what he was doing to any skilled parachutist would never have done this or, or might not have done it. And then, of course, that brings us to the most recent lead that just made the headlines in August. A woman named Marla Cooper came forward and said that based on some childhood memories of when she was eight years old, she believes that her uncle, Lynn Doyle Cooper, was actually the hijacker. She remembers seeing her uncle show up that night, that night before Thanksgiving of 1971, at a family member's home with serious injuries. Again, here, though, DNA testing failed to connect the new suspect to D.B. Cooper's tie. In that case, the tests are still inconclusive, though. They're still looking for better prints from Lynn Doyle Cooper to test. I think he was estranged from his family, so they're having to dig that kind of stuff up. But for now, this lead has gone cold. So still so, maybe more to come from that, maybe not. Well, and we could really keep on going with these leads and these theories and investigations that are going on even now, 40 years later, to try to get to the bottom of this mysterious case. So sorry if we've skipped over your favorite D.B. Cooper theory. You can always write in and let us know at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. But People's attitude is really interesting, and you actually blogged about this, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I kind of couldn't get it out of my head when I was reading the news about Lynn Doyle Cooper and Marla Cooper coming forward and the new lead, and then even after it went cold, I was just fascinated by 
how most people, it seems that they don't want this case to be solved. You've seen a lot of articles probably about that. I mean, people aren't really upset that the mystery still continues for some reason. But they also don't want Cooper to be caught, in a sense, even if he's not alive. And some articles even suggest he's become a Robin Hood-style folk hero. And so he has people rooting for him. Yeah, and I never thought about it that way. I always kind of thought that the reason that people were so drawn to the story is just because it's a mystery. You know, you want they to want find to out the it. answer. You want to catch the guy. But I never thought that people would actually sympathize with Cooper. I could, I guess I can see the argument. You know, he went up against the big corporation in a way and got away. And that might be easy to do. I mean, he didn't kill anyone. And most people who interacted with him on that day remember him as polite. He's been called the gentleman hijacker. He even insisted on paying for his bourbon that day. He paid the flight attendant 20 bucks and, you know, told her to keep the change. And of course, it's just a great story. I yeah. mean, I was telling Sarah I was getting like a research high from <laughs> from working on this because there's so much more. There's always more. Like Sarah said, there's always more theories. There's always more to find out about this case. You can see why people would get obsessed with it. But, I mean, that Robin Hood angle aside, he's still a criminal. And, and what he did was really scary and, and probably did a lot to influence the way we travel today, the way air travel and airport security is, or I mean, at least that started to to change around that period. Yes, that's true. And it's also interesting to read this interview with Schaefner in New York Magazine and hear her talk about how decades later she was still afraid that Cooper might come after her because she was a witness to this crime. So even though he didn't kill anyone, he did do some damage. Certainly. And I mean, what he did would have been really terrifying for the people involved. So yes. something to consider for sure. And something to consider whenever we talk about kind of glamorized criminals like the the Bush Rangers and all of those fellows. Yeah, um, just, we do that quite a bit in covering history, I think. And, you know, it's not intentional, but people just really get into the stories because they're such fascinating characters or the events surrounding them are so interesting. But, um, you know, we never lose sight of the fact that they remember did. Remember what's really Steak. Yep. So the D.B. Cooper mystery continues. As Sarah said, please write in with your favorite D.B. Cooper theories if we missed them or your favorite leads if we didn't cover them. We, sorry, we don't have time to cover everything here, but we would love to hear about them at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. Or you can look us up on Facebook or we're on Twitter at Missed in History. And if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the D.B. Cooper theories through the ages, we do have an article called, Is D.B. Cooper Still Alive? And you can find it by looking on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.